Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 14 through 40, which is a longer than normal passage. It is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. I was tempted just to read it and say, there, you've had your sermon, uh, but you're not going to get off that lightly. Um, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, hear now God's word. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of, of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming and great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, uh, says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Thus far, the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. What has happened to Peter? 
In six weeks, he's changed from a cowering coward that we saw in the, at the high, in the high priest's courtyard into the brave and bold preacher portrayed in Acts chapter 2. Six weeks. In a series of sermons on Acts, 4th century preacher John Chrysostom put it this way, A damsel, it is written, came out unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he, and says he, I knew not the man. And being again questioned, he began to curse and swear. But see here his boldness and his great freedom of speech. In the first chapter of Acts, we have seen Peter as the leader of the disciples urging the election of Matthias and displaying that he had been deeply immersed in the scriptures. Uh, And again, I I think uh, it's become more and more evident that Jesus spent a good bit of those six weeks instructing his disciples and apostles in those scriptures. And this situation, this very opening fact that we observe here should be very encouraging to all of us. Recovery from spiritual failure is possible. And the grace of God in the gospel covers a multitude of sins. So let's have a little historical context for what's going on here. And by the way, there will be more than, there will probably be a second sermon from this text. We can't cover all this this morning. But I want to set the context and get the big picture of this. The Jews, as the Jews of the first century read the scriptures, they saw themselves as the generation for whom the promised Messiah would come. Now, again, we have a parallel for this, I think, in the days we've grown up around dispensationalism. Like many in our day, and really, frankly, for the past 2,000 years, have thought that the second coming of Christ would happen in their generation. I think C.S. Lewis referred to this as chronological snobbery. Um, We're the generation. We're it. Um, So, for example, in the book of Daniel, we find a prophecy that says the Babylonian exile would last for 490 years, and that began somewhere between 400 and 500 years before. And as you can imagine, people calculated that in different ways. So at Pentecost, Jerusalem is now filled with people who are eager for signs that this is, these are the last days. And um, so what Peter is offering in this sermon or speech is not simply an explanation of the strange thing that they just witnessed and heard, the speaking in foreign languages, not just that, but a broader declaration that indeed, and what he's going to argue here is, you're right, these are the last days. They have arrived and Jesus is that long-expected king. Now, to make it clear, and there is much confusion in our own day on this subject, when the Bible speaks of the last days, it is referring to the period of time between the moment when the last days had begun, that is, this Passover, and the moment when the last days would come to an end, which is called the Day of the Lord. 
You'll recall that the two angels in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, have told the apostles and the disciples that, quote, this same Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven, they've just witnessed Jesus ascending into heaven, this same Jesus will also come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. At the same time, heaven and earth, at that time, heaven and earth will be joined together in the great crescendo of the renewal of all things. Acts chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21. Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God had spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. We see this theme over and over. Remember Jesus talking to his disciples after his resurrection, showing them in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms how all of the scriptures spoke of him. The Bible is one book with one message. I'm convinced that, again, Jesus had taught Peter and the others much from the scriptures during his 40 days of interaction with them, and it shows especially in Peter in Acts 1 and 2. Because of what he had seen in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, we saw him insisting, Peter, that the disciples, uh, he insists on the replacement of Judas so that the number of apostles would be restored to 12. And now it was the prophecy of Joel that is on his mind. Again, we don't see Peter talking like this prior to this moment. Peter was reading the Bible with a brand new perspective. Peter had come to understand that this Pentecost is exactly what Joel was talking about in Joel 2:28-32. All of this that was happening was a fulfillment of scripture. It's critical and crucial for us to see that the Bible has an essential unity between what we call the Old and New Testaments. So the writers of the Old Testament were certainly aware of this. Peter will write about this when we read in his first epistle, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, of this salvation, Christian salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So he said the, the Old Testament, well, we'd say the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, speaking about the Christians who were living right then, searching or what, uh, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, the Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified, that is, Jesus testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, what we call New Testament believers, but to us, they, the Old Testament prophets, were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, which is what we're, which is what happened on Pentecost, 
things which angels desire to look into. Angels are amazed. They can't believe these sinners have been saved. Moreover, the writers of the New Testament were so deeply conscious of continuing the story of redemption that had begun in Eden. And so the Bible is one book with one message with one principal author, and that is the Holy Spirit. Peter again will write later in 2 Peter 1, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Derek Thomas summarizes this point when he said, The Bible is one book with one message, with one principal author, the Holy Spirit. It was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years by authors working largely independent of each other. The books themselves span almost every conceivable genre, prose, jostling poetry, hymns, rubbing shoulders with history, sermons with statistics, letters with liturgies, uh, lurid visions with a love song. The Bible is rightfully seen as one book because of the beauty of its harmony and its unity. All of its various parts, written centuries apart, are clearly designed to illuminate and illustrate each other. J.I. Packer says there is throughout one leading character, God the Creator, one historical perspective, world redemption, one focal figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who was both Son of God and Savior, and one solid body of harmonious teaching about God and godliness. So the story of redemption is told on every page of Scripture. And as Christians, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. For Peter, as, as, as he cites Joel, and as he will later in the sermon cite from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, is attesting to the identity of Jesus Christ. The Bible, As he does that, the, he's attesting that the Bible is God's word and it, it, and, and, uh, it has divine authority. So, to Peter's sermon. Now, we should remember that what Luke provides is only a summary of what Peter actually said. Uh, We have a number of speeches or sermons throughout the book of Acts, and uh, they are, uh, I kind of think of them as the cliff notes. Uh, And we know that because Peter himself says... um, that there were many other things uh, that were written about that he hasn't written down or, or things that happened. He says in Acts 2.40, many other words that he didn't record. So this was not just a seven-minute sermon. The last days were the time of the new creation, and the new creation was beginning now with God's own people. That's what's happening at Pentecost. Remember they asked, what could this mean, hearing people speak in our own language? What does this mean? And Peter is now in this sermon answering that question. I'll tell you what it means. So this is where Peter's quotation from Joel is used to explain the situation they had all just witnessed. 
in answer, and by the way, what they heard when they spoke in foreign languages was the wonderful works of God, which included the works of Jesus. So in answer to the question, what does this mean? Peter says, in effect, this is that. This that you're seeing and hearing is that which Joel talked about. He's connecting these two. Joel had said that God would pour out his spirit in a new way. He applies the passage to Jesus saying, quote, The Lord who brings salvation is no longer Yahweh who shelters survivors on Mount Zion, but rather Jesus who saves from sin and judgment everyone who calls on his name. Now both are true. One was then and local and more narrowly defined, and now this is broad and is being applied to Jesus. The reason the last days have arrived is simply because of the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. His resurrection was not just some isolated miracle, but was connected to the fulfillment of the promise made by God through King David. They demonstrated, or excuse me, they demonstrate that the one who has been raised from the dead is the true son and heir of David. Remember, everybody's looking for a king. Everybody's looking for a Messiah to come save them from the Romans and from oppression and, and to set them free. They're looking for an heir to David's throne to show up, and now he has. In other words, Jesus was the rightful king of Israel. It's clear that Jesus' physical body was thoroughly dead, and then after that, and by the way, the whole idea of the crucifixion was, of course, he was put on display. Let me just back up a little bit to give a little more context. Remember on the road to Emmaus when Jesus is walking with the two disciples, and they didn't recognize Jesus. And he asked, what's going on? And you remember what they said is, I'm going to paraphrase, they're like, where have you been? Everybody knows what's going on. Have you not been here? You haven't heard or seen? And they're talking about the crucifixion. They don't know about the resurrection yet. So all these Jews who gathered there for Passover and then later for Pentecost... They would have known Jesus had been put on public display and was dead as a doornail. They knew that. That wasn't a secret. God put him on public display so there was no question about his situation. So it was clear that his physical body was thoroughly dead. And now it is clear that he is thoroughly alive and suffered no corruption or decay. Peter emphasizes this point now by quoting from Psalm 16. Again, all of a sudden we see Peter over and over and over and over quoting from the Old Testament. I foresaw the Lord, or Yahweh, always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. This is Peter quoting again from Psalm 16. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter explains in verse 31 of Acts 2, David foreseeing this 
spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And Peter's point is made in verses 29 and 30. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Remember, these are Jews. They know who David is. That he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us today. Y'all want to go to, you want to go see his tomb? We know he lived and we know he died and we know he's still dead. Therefore, being a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Now we know that David could not have been referring to himself because we know that he died and was buried and that his flesh decayed in the normal way. The only way we can make sense of this psalm is to understand it prophetically as it, is expressed, as it expresses the mysterious truth that one day a son of David would appear to whom it would actually happen. That's how we would know. That's how we would know that these are the last days because he had arrived and he's the rightful king. So Peter is gone for the, for, uh, from the sign of the tongues as the outpouring of the Spirit the resurrection of Jesus as the sure sign that he's the Messiah and the one Israel had been waiting for. And this brought together is brought together in verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, that is Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, poured out this which you now see and hear. Remember they asked, what does this mean? He said, here's what's going on. You killed Jesus, he rose from the dead, he's been seated at the right hand, God promised to give him the Holy Spirit, gave it to him, and now he's pouring that out on us. That's what's going on. That's the explanation. And this was prophesied a long time ago, right in front of you. Then he quotes from Psalm 110 again, uh, and I speculate, again, that Jesus taught Peter these specific passages during this time period between the resurrection and the ascension. So here's the quote there from Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. These extraordinary events on the day of Pentecost were actually signs that pointed to the fact that God, as we read in verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This combination of the titles Lord and Christ or Messiah seem to refer to the Psalm 110 passage This in this messianic psalm that the ultimate king of Israel would also be the world's true Lord. So remember, Israel was God's chosen people for the sake of the world, not for their own sake. They're, they were chosen initially to take this message to the world, to be priest as it were, Therefore, when Israel's true and final king arrives, he's going to be the world's ultimate and rightful sovereign. Jesus said, you remember to the scribes and Pharisee, or to the scribes in Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through 44, and Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? 
Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, and he quotes the same passage, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? This fact enables us to understand verse 27 in Acts 2, which summarizes the point of view of the whole New Testament. And it says this, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. N.T. Wright observes, On the one hand, Jesus' shameful and horrible death was the act of wicked, unscrupulous, lawless people. The leaders of the Jewish people had handed Jesus over to the pagans in full knowledge of the brutally effective torture and death they would inflict on him. At every stage of the process, Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, the trumped-up charges, the kangaroo court, the cynicism of the Jewish leaders, Pilate's vacillation, cowardice and indifference to justice, the crowd baying for blood, the mocking of the soldiers, and one at least of those crucified alongside him, alongside him Jesus' path to his death had been marked by all kinds of evil doing its worst to him. But the early Christians quickly came to see in the light of the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit that even this was what Israel's God, the Creator God, had determined must take place. This anointed king would undertake the ultimate rescue and salvation. When evil crescendoed, and human systems displayed their greatest corruption, Rome, with its alleged great system of justice, it's now corrupt. Israel, with its celebrated temple and hierarchy, now revealing its hypocrisy. All of this human power was collected against and poured out upon the one person who has ever lived that had done nothing to deserve it. This was God's plan from the beginning to nullify these evil powers by taking the full force of it upon himself in the person of his son. The man whom God himself, in whom God himself would be embodied. That's the gospel. He took our evil too. And so this sets the stage for some other things Peter is going to say. We're going to see that toward the end they say, what must we do to be saved? And he's going to tell them. And interesting, when he tells them, again, this crowd of Jews who gathered, who were familiar with the Old Testament, He's going to tell them, you know what, this isn't brand new. It's the same thing God told Abraham. Same thing he promised Abraham. The promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far off. Sound familiar? That's the old Abrahamic promise. Abraham, I'll be a God to you. I'll be a God to your children. and I'll be a God to the nations through you, to those who are far off. 
Ephesians is going to tell us that those who were far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. This is a gospel not for some small, limited number of people. It's a gospel for the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that's what this means. And we're still trying to to grasp that. Because that wasn't just then. As I said last week, that story that Peter is explaining when he says, what Joel was talking about is what's happening today and what we're reading about in, in Acts chapter 2 is happening today. That's what we're, that's our mission. That's your mission. That's what we're here for. We're not here to get a bigger and better house or a nicer car or a good retirement fund. I'm not saying those particular things are in and of themselves bad. That's, that's a long, big discussion. But when those become the object of our living, our happiness, our this and our that, that I am the center of what's going on instead of this, then we don't get this. Those things are blessings that God may or may not allow us to enjoy. He certainly has allowed most of us to enjoy many of those things. But if those things are causing you or me to forget why we're here, then I'm going to ask you now as we get ready to come to the table to start repenting and changing and putting things in order. You are here because Jesus Christ purchased you and you're not your own anymore. You belong to him and that's a good thing because he's a lot smarter than you. He's a lot more powerful than you. He has your best interest at heart. And so our goal now is to find out what he wants us to do and to do it and to do it with all of our might and joy. It's a privilege. And that all started on the day of Pentecost right here. This culmination of everything he'd been doing, this is the big crescendo. Let's pray. Father, it gives us great relief and encouragement to know that your sovereign plan is perfect and powerful, even powerful to overcome the greatest evils. And we are grateful to know that you love us, even though our own spiritual failures uh, are there and are at work in us to make us, uh, and, and that your spirit is at work in us to make us mature and bold in Christ. We see your victory in Jesus and rejoice to know that the Holy Spirit is still at work in and through your church to show the world the wonderful works of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Make us zealous for what is right, O God. Give us the desire and the power to stand for the truth and live for the truth, regardless of the consequences. Give us the willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake if it is necessary, and we know that inevitably it will become necessary. Give us the intellectual knowledge and ability to make a proclamation of the gospel and a defense of the faith. But even more, give us the preparation of life to defend the gospel by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts and over all of life. Give us opportunities to account for the hope that is in us today and boldness to seize the opportunities with gentleness and reverence. Let our speech be always with grace 
seasoned with salt, that we may know how we ought to answer each one. Indeed, make us salt and light in a corrupt and dark world. Bless now this Lord's day, our rest and our delight. Bless our food and our fellowship, and bless our service to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion both now and forever. Amen. Amen.